Hi everyone, Ian here. Jason and I will be back in two weeks with our first new episode of the year. In the meantime, we wanted to revisit three interviews from our earlier episodes that really stood out to us. First up is Andrew Poor, who filled us in on the world of cargo airlines and how getting things from A to B is not as simple as it seems. Welcome back to AvTalk. We are here with Andrew Poor, who is a supervisor in the flight operations department for a major U.S.-based cargo carrier, and we're, we're going to talk about all things cargo. Andrew, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Welcome to the show, buddy. So, Andrew, your, your job is the supervisor in the flight operations, and I would love to hear what exactly that is and, and what you do What, uh, what does that day mean? Day. Nobody knows what you do. <laughs> sure. Yeah. The department specifically that I work in is referred to as international flight clearance. So I'm, I'm one of the supervisors there. And what we're responsible for essentially is gathering all of the governmental approvals for all our cargo flights, um, whether that's an overflight permit, a landing permit, actual traffic rights for whatever country or countries we're going to and from, as well as some customs considerations, all those sorts of things fall under our uh, responsibility in my department. So there's an absolute ton of work that goes on behind the scenes at any airline. And mainly our focus admittedly is passenger airlines, but you work for a cargo airline. What goes on in the background at a cargo airline that doesn't happen at a passenger airline? Well, the airline I work for, we do a whole lot of ad hoc charters. So somebody will call us and say, you know, tomorrow we need to go from here to here or next week we need to go from here to here. So we're doing a lot of last minute planning, a lot of short notice types of things like that. And the overflight permits, the landing permits, traffic rights is all a little bit different because of that, because for a passenger airline, they're planning these things months and months in advance, and it's all done seasonally, yearly even. So it's quite a bit different in that sense. So yeah, you're absolutely right that a passenger airline will publish their schedule almost a full year in advance. And they have obviously adequate time, ample time to get the permits, overflight, everything that they need to get from A to B. How do you do it if a client calls your airline and says, I want to fly from Kentucky to Kazakhstan and I want to do it right the hell now? What do you do? What's the first thing you do? First thing we do is we check what traffic rides in Kazakhstan are going to take in terms of a lead time. Off the top of my head, that would probably be oh, three to five days. So we would tell our customer, well, our sales team would, we would tell our sales team who would then tell the customer that we'd have a maybe five day lead time on that. Again, off the top of my head, going from Midwest US over to Kazakhstan, overflights aren't going to be much of a problem. We could probably get all our overflights in say 24 hours for that flight. Europe, we don't need anything for a civilian flight of that sort. So I would say, yeah, tell our sales team, got a few days lead time to get all those permits. And then we'd create a, a sheet basically that goes in our system, our uh, flight operations software that lists all of that, whether it's overflights, traffic rights, customs, slots. I didn't mention that. We also handle all of our airport slots for our airline in our department. So we attach that, we fill it out, and we get going immediately. So if you're flying from A to B, do you just instinctively have to know where this flight is going to fly over? Or do you have some sort of software that tells you this flight's probably going to operate over these countries, you need to get in contact with them? A little bit of both. When we first get trained in our department, we do a whole lot of geography practice. 
we'll end up after our five days of kind of training class, our trainer will put up a blank world map on the on the wall and have us fill it all out. But we do use the same flight planning software that our dispatchers use. So we'll run a test flight plan whenever we get one of these ad hoc charters or a new added flight. And we'll see exactly where we're overflying, where we need to adjust routings to not overfly somewhere. Because, you know, there are certain places we will not overfly or cannot overfly, depending on various circumstances. So. So what's the actual, I mean, is it a physical stack of paperwork or is it just kind of an electronic file where you're dealing with, you've got all of these permits and things like that. So so to use, to stick with Jason's Kentucky to Kazakhstan example, how many different pieces of paperwork are involved in, in that five day lead time? It kind of varies depending on what the cargo may be, what route we'll take. But we do generally have an actual stack of paperwork that we're using for these flights. We have a folder that will compile everything in. So for that example, we definitely have an approval and or an application to start out with for Kazakhstan that we would have in there. So that a few pages probably there right off the bat just for traffic rights. I don't know if there's a slot controlled airport anywhere in Kazakhstan, probably not, but say there were, we would have that printed out, stick it in our file. Like I said, we wouldn't need any overflight permits for that route, except maybe couple of the countries right there in close to Kazakhstan, maybe a Russia, maybe a Belarus going up north that way. But it would be a pretty thin folder for that example, to be perfectly honest. So what exactly is an overflight permit? What is it? How do you get it? What does it mean? It's permission to enter the airspace and overfly, you know, landmass of a country. We don't have to get it for every country. Like I said, uh, Europe for a U.S. airline is not going to be a problem on any sort of civilian cargo flight. And again, if it's military, that's a whole different story. And we do a, a lot of military flying, 30, 40 missions a month at our airline. But for civilian flying, it's a pretty simple process for the most part. A lot of the countries will ask for a specific route or an entry and exit waypoint into their airspace, and they'll only accept certain ones. So we have to look at that for every application we send out for an overflight we have to make sure we're following the rules in that regard. Some countries will request more paperwork depending on whether we've been there recently or not. So we'll send, you know, insurance certificates or airworthiness and uh, registration certificates, noise certificates for our airplanes, all those, those sorts of things. So you touched upon something briefly that I want to dive into a little more military flight. So I'm assuming every major cargo operation occasionally runs operations and, and flights for the military, be it the US or if they're in another country, another military. How different is that operation for you when you're operating a military operation? It's extremely different, particularly for our department. You know, the getting from A to B, putting the cargo on board and all of that is pretty similar to what we're doing in the civilian side. But as far as clearances go, when we're operating under a military call sign, the U.S. Air Force, they have a call sign that they use for all their contractor flights that we'll use going into any sort of military base. And when we're under that call sign, we're essentially a U.S. military aircraft. So all of our overflight landings, all of those clearances have to actually go through the U.S. embassy in every country we overfly or land at. So we have a Pentagon website we actually use for that, that we'll go in, we'll lay out our entire flight, our route, our timings, and all of that, and submit that. And then every defense attache office in each embassy of each country will get that request and then forward that on to the host country. So it's a much more involved process. There's a lot more 
to it, I suppose. And there's a lot more rules, a lot longer lead times, generally speaking, and some very strict sort of restrictions. And you have to describe your cargo and that sort of thing pretty strictly. So it's, it's quite a bit different. You mentioned there's a specific call sign for military cargo flights. What is it? Camber. That's Charlie Mike Bravo on the three-letter code. So if you ever type that into a flight radar, you'll usually see one or two, maybe three or four at a time all over the world. Could be FedEx, UPS, somebody like that flying them. But then there's also ad hoc operators like my employer and a couple others that fly day in and day out or flying Camber flights all the time. I wonder what that means. Where'd they come up with that? <laughs> I'm sure someone will tell us. And if you know, podcast at fr24.com, we'll include it in the next episode. I want to come back to Jason's example, sticking with the same Kentucky to Kazakhstan. I don't know why he picked it, but we'll go with it because we it, lends itself, it lends itself to the next kind of example that I'll use. And let's talk about live cargo. Let's say that we're sending you know, a cargo of Kentucky racehorses to Kazakhstan because somebody in Kazakhstan wants to breed racehorses or something like that. Obviously. How how would that flight be different? I mean, obviously there's some considerations when you have live animals on board, but from from an operator perspective and a planning perspective, how is that flight different than flying, you know, uh, 10 tons of potatoes or something? Right. A few key differences would probably involve scheduling. We would plan a lot more ground time, both on the outbound from Kentucky and on the ground in Kazakhstan, because it's going to take a lot longer to load, offload that kind of cargo. So that'd be one consideration, definitely. Fuel would be another consideration because you're going to want to have more gas on the airplane to be able to control the climate a little bit better. If you want to run the packs, the AC packs, the whole flight or on the ground for the entire turnaround time. So things like that come into play, as well as jump seat availability, because when we're carrying live animals, we almost always have handlers that are going along with these animals. So we would generally, we have two types of 747-400s at my airline. We have the true freighters and we have Boeing converted freighters. The Boeing converted freighters have a lot more extra space up on the upper deck. So we would probably aim to use one of those. So we have room to carry all the horse handlers. So with cargo, there's, I mean, when you, when you take a passenger flight, that's international flight. You get off the plane, you go collect your baggage or, or visit the restroom. And then you walk up to a little booth and you present your passport and you say, I'm here. And they say, come on in. And or they don't, that's, or they don't in Jason's case, usually. <laughs> How is that the same? I mean, obviously the, the horses don't walk up to the booth themselves, but how is that the same when you, when you're transporting cargo internationally? Is, is it, is there a lot of difference there getting goods into the country versus dealing with just people alone or, or is it a pretty similar straightforward process? It's pretty straightforward for the most part. There's computer systems that customs uses for cargo in particular. So we, you know, we broadcast all of our necessary messages to them with all our cargo manifests and that sort of thing. And generally they'll come out to the airplane, they'll clear the cargo when we arrive. Uh, you, well, this is, I'm using the U.S. off the top of my head, not other countries, but it's pretty much the same. Yeah, on cargo flights, they'll generally, they'll come to the aircraft. That or there's a warehouse right there at the ramp that customs will base themselves in and they'll process all the cargo coming through there. 
but they'll also tend to come to the aircraft to clear the crew. They'll check passports that way. Depending on the airport, there's a few airports, you know, that I can think of that they'll actually transfer our crew over to the terminal to clear customs, but that's that's more rare. So uh, on the whole, I would say it is a fairly straightforward process as it is with passengers, just, you know, a little bit different logistically. Hmm. So again, comparing cargo to passenger, for a passenger airline, flying an empty airplane is like the worst thing ever. You're not making any money, everybody loses. How often or at all does a cargo operation maybe fly an aircraft completely empty? If you're bringing something, again, from Kentucky to Kazakhstan, you may not have something to bring back from Kazakhstan. So is that does that happen a lot or is it acceptable or what happens? It does happen a lot, especially since so much of our flying is ad hoc or on a contract basis. You know, we'll try to find revenue wherever we can. So a lot of uh, a lot of the time what we'll do is if we fly to somewhere like that part of the world, we'll be flying transatlantic, obviously, and then over into the Western Asia area. So if we were going to Kazakhstan, for example, we would probably fly in there with, say, the horses, drop them off, and we would likely then, in our operation, as an example, I would say we'd go to Amsterdam because we have a regular contract to carry cargo out of Amsterdam to JFK. So we kind of operate those whenever we get the chance. It's you know kind of a mixed bag. Whenever we have the opportunity, we'll fly into Amsterdam and then carry cargo back to the States through JFK. So we do fly empty a lot, but we do try to find revenue any place we can. But again, since we're flying ad hoc contract basis, we will build in those ferry flights to contracts whenever we can. Because if somebody wants to ship a 747 load of whatever they need ship, a lot of the times you throw another $75,000 for a ferry flight on there, they're going to pay it just because they don't really have another choice. So whenever possible, our sales team will try to sort of build ferry pricing into whatever contract we're about to fly. So when customers book out one of your 747s, is it typically a big thing that can't fit on a smaller aircraft or a lot of small things that just needs to be moved all in one shot? It's probably pretty 50-50 on the, on the whole. We fly a lot of just general cargo as ad hoc flights, just palletized or containerized, whatever it may be. Just for freight forwarders, companies like Panalpina, UPS, Supply Chain Solutions, those types of companies that are international freight forwarders that they could have their own customers shipping whatever. Could be iPhones out of China, could be, well, right now we're flying a lot of cherries from West Coast, North America over to China. So it really, you know, could be anything. But we do a lot of the outside stuff as well, especially since we have... How many do we have now? By the end of the year, we'll have nine 747 true freighters with nose doors. And those definitely come in handy for the sort of unusual large cargo, whether that's like a true shipping container, like a steel sea cargo container. We do those more frequently than you might think. Drilling equipment for natural gas, all those sorts of things that are really only going to fit on a 747. So only the true freighters have the nose door, where the whole nose kind of lifts up, while the converted freighters, I guess, have had a cargo door put into the side of the aircraft? Yep, correct. How do you prioritize what goes where, or do specific customers request that, or do you just know the size of the cargo requires a specific aircraft type? 
The types of, you know, oversized cargo that we fly on the nose door aircraft, it's always so specialized that the sales team knows from the get-go that it's it's going to be a nose door kind of movement. So we'll look out well in advance and try to hold a true freighter reserved for that type of flight. So I want to come back to the the containerized cargo because you said more often than you might think and I had honestly never thought about that before. I've seen certain things containerized and and flown things like like spacecraft where they they wrap them up basically hermetically seal them and and containerize them. But what other things, I mean if you can share any of that, what other things go in containers that then get loaded onto a 747? Various things. A lot of it that I can think of off the top of my head is military and government type of cargo that I'm not going to go into too much detail about, but nothing super crazy, but it could be just general supplies for military troops and things like uniforms and that sort of thing. Because the military uses those for so much of their logistics that it's just easier to throw them on a 747 whenever possible. So, yeah. What's the strangest cargo you've ever had to prepare for a flight? Off the top of my head, the one that comes to mind is 225,000 pounds of ketchup packets. Ketchup packets? <laughs> Where were the ketchup packets going to that they had to be ad hoc shipped with a 747? So they were shipped from the West Coast to three different Wendy's distribution centers on the eastern part of the country. No way. Yeah. So uh, there was a recall at some point a couple years back. And so all of their ketchup packets on the East Coast and Midwest got recalled. So we flew a 747 load of new ketchup packets from a different supplier on the West Coast to their distribution centers. This kind of explains so much. About a year ago, <laughs> we started seeing ketchup packets from In-N-Out Burger in New York City. And there are no In-N-Out Burgers on the East Coast or like even east of the Mississippi. So maybe one of those ketchup packets came off your 747. Could have been. Yeah. Wow. I never would have thought. What What does 225,000 pounds of ketchup packets look like as far as in – I mean – is that just boxes on a pallet or? Yeah, it was palletized. And probably, you know, I don't know off the top of my head, but I assume it more or less filled the aircraft, probably upper deck and lower deck, just full of pallets of ketchup packets. I have no segue from that. <laughs> Ian, you come up with something. I can't beat that. Well, I, I mean, I, I, I'm just thinking like I, as a pilot, how, how do you consider, does it come in to play what you're flying? I mean, it, you know, do, do you care or is it just do you care enough to know how you have to fly the aircraft? So, I mean, obviously you're going to handle the aircraft a little bit differently, not a lot differently, but a little bit differently if you're flying horses versus ketchup packets. But but how much how much comes into play there? I think you kind of hit the nail on the head there. I mean, if it's live animals, it's going to be a little bit different. You're going to handle the airplane with a little bit more finesse. Maybe you're not going to be taking last minute vectors and making 45 degree banks and that sort of thing. But anything else general cargo wise, you know, as long as it's strapped down right, which it always is, especially since, you know, some of the high profile incidents that have occurred in the past several years, we take lots and lots of time to make sure whatever it is, it's strapped down, it's secure in every possible way. But because we do that, we take so much time for that. If it's not live animals, it's probably not going to have much of an impact on how the flight crew is operating the aircraft. Right. 
I think I just have one more question, and it's basically, what's the hardest destination for you to get all your permits, all your paperwork, all your requirements set in stone for? Oh, that is a tough question because everywhere has its challenges. I would definitely have to say that the military flying is harder than civilian flying, but just for the sake of kind of staying on topic and staying a little more away from the military side, because I don't, I don't want to talk too much about it. On the civilian side, Africa is always a challenge, especially some of the kind of less developed nations there. We have to go through a third party vendor to get most of those overflights. Uh, we don't do it directly ourselves. And then traffic rights can be a challenge because it can be even a challenge just to get in communication with the right agencies we need to get in communication with. So Right. That's a great point. I had imagined if you're flying to somewhere like the Sudan or somewhere interior Africa, they might not even have the infrastructure in place for you to go to a website and apply for the permit. So does this third party agency literally have a person on the ground in these countries that goes to acquire the permit for you? They very well may. If they don't, they have a particular contact in whatever agency or near to close to whatever agency they need to talk to. They have their kind of network that we don't. So they're able to kind of do that a little more efficiently than we are. So last question, and then we'll let you get back to planning horse trip from Kentucky to Kazakhstan. We asked people on on Twitter and Facebook to to send us questions if they had anything that they wanted to know about cargo. And one person asked how much it would cost to ship themselves somewhere. (laughs) And so can you give this a ballpark figure on how much it would cost to ship one person on a pallet from Kentucky to Kazakhstan? Before you answer, we do not endorse, recommend, or would ever otherwise try to fly a human being in a cargo flight, but just hypothetically. Yeah. (laughs) The thing is, with an ad hoc flight like that, if you wanted to just go A to B at your choosing, you're going to need to rent the whole airplane. So unless you have a quarter of a million pounds of other stuff to put on the airplane, I would highly recommend you don't do such a thing. Jason, we need to get some ketchup packets. Can we opt for mustard, maybe? Change it up a bit? Oh, okay. I'd even go mayo. Oh. I mean, just to be way out there. (laughs) A full charter for a 747 if you wanted to just ship yourself on the whole big empty airplane. It's still going to cost you a quarter of a million dollars to fly from the U.S. to Kazakhstan, so I wouldn't recommend it. I am going to keep flying commercially then. There you go. All right, so no pallet travel, and I think we answered or we asked all the questions we had. We've been chatting with Andrew Poor, who is a supervisor in, in flight operations at a major U.S.-based cargo carrier. And he has been filling us in on on a world not many of us get to see very often. Andrew, I want to thank you so much for joining us. It was great talking to you. And where can we find you? Where can I follow you? I'm on Twitter at A-P-O-U-R-E-2-5. I welcome new followers. I post some, occasionally post some interesting things about what I do, what's going on in the cargo world. So feel free. That sounds great. Yeah, give, give Andrew a follow. Some of the stuff he posts is is very interesting if you're into cargo and into how flight operations work. So some very cool stuff. Andrew, thanks again for joining us. Thanks for having me. I thanks, it. Andrew. Just after the first flight of the COMAC C919 in May, we sat down with John Ostrauer, CNN's aviation editor, to learn more about where the C919 fits into the airliner landscape and how the Chinese aviation market is reshaping the industry. 
And we're back with John Ostrauer, the CNN aviation editor, to talk about the first flight and development of the COMAX C919. John, welcome to AvTalk. Thank you for having me. Great to have you, John. So what we saw last week on Friday in Shanghai was the first flight of the C919. And so we wanted to have you on to, to kind of tell us about, we know it's China's first large passenger aircraft that they've developed domestically, but why was it something that they've been working on? What's kind of the importance of this and, and versus some of the other new aircraft that are coming out, like the MRJ from Japan and the C-Series from Canada, and some of the things that, that are going on around the development and its importance in the Chinese aviation market. So that's what we wanted to, to bring you on and kind of discuss. And maybe if you could just kind of give us a little bit of background on, on the development of the, the C-919 and what's going on there. Absolutely. The C-919 is placed up against the backdrop of what is going to be the world's largest aviation market. It's going to be bigger than the US by about 2030 or so. And they need $1 trillion worth of airplanes, a trillion dollars worth of airplanes. It's the first trillion dollar market. And about 5,000 of those are going to be single aisle aircraft. And right now, China's airlines are feathering their nest, so to speak, with Boeing and Airbus single aisle aircraft. So 320s, 321s, 737-800s, so on and so forth. You know, we're, we're going to see Maxes and Neos pouring into into China over the next the next several years. And the bottom line is, China wants to be a first class industrial stalwart along with the U.S. And part of the role of being the world's largest economy is also having your own jetliner industry. And so, over the last decade or so, they set about developing a single aisle aircraft that would might not necessarily compete today with Boeing and Airbus, but would be the same shape and size and, and rough performance of the A320 and the 737-800 to fly primarily domestic missions in China. It's, I think, about 4,000 kilometers, which should put you pretty much most points within China. So ultimately, this is their learning opportunity. It's their opportunity to develop an aircraft with Western suppliers who have the experience and who have the vested interest to make a Chinese airplane successful and reliable now, because guess what? In 25 years, when all of the 320s and the maxes that are flying or going to be built today are going to be retired then, and they are not going to be replaced with Boeing and Airbus aircraft necessarily. They are going to be replaced with whatever the successor is to the C919. That's a great point. So approximately how many orders does the C-19 have today? Comet claims about 570, I believe. Certainly there's some squishiness in there in terms of commitments, options, firm orders. The bottom line is from, from a commercial perspective, whomever they want to buy the airplane will buy the airplane when it comes to China's state-owned airlines. They've got a stable of the big three and a bunch of others, big three being not Delta United and American in this case. This is you know Air China, China Eastern, China Southern, the other big three. And they're going to be flying at first. And actually, China Eastern, I think just today, announced that the first route is going to be Shanghai to Beijing, but there was no time attached to that. So, you know, obviously we're just the very beginning of flight test and Chinese flight test programs take a very, very, very long time as we've seen. When do you expect to see it actually flying commercially? So uh, depends who you ask. There's, you know, a lot of people assume that there are going to be a smattering of deliveries, maybe sometime around 19 or 20, and maybe it picks up pace after that. You know, this is going to be 
the one thing you to remember here is that they have the patience to do this and getting it right and not only getting it right from a safety perspective, but getting it right from a, a certification and reliability perspective is going to be the most valuable learning experience for them. And making sure that they can develop an airplane that is reliable, safe, producible, and reproducible ultimately is the is the most invaluable invaluable learning experience you can have in a in commercial aircraft. So correct me if I'm wrong, but the argument for the C919 is not really this is a great airplane, this is, you know, the the best airplane for flying, you know, between Beijing and Shanghai. It's we're developing this airplane, we're going to make it safe, reliable, we're going to learn and then the next airplane we build, that's going to be the one where we sell a thousand, two thousand, three thousand, four thousand, five thousand. That's really the. I mean, if, if you're thinking about competitors, that's really the the seven thirty seven A three twenty competition. But we're talking, you know, twenty, thirty years down the road. Absolutely, and I think in the near term, probably shouldn't write off the nine one nine that much. Honestly, I mean, not in terms of Western competition, in terms of you know head to head campaign against Boeing and Airbus necessarily. But remember the the engines flying under the wing of the nine one nine are exactly the same as the A320neo. So you're dealing with essentially a level playing field in terms of propulsion. Airframe efficiency is going to be something that they're going to learn over time. Systems reliability, systems architecture, you know, systems integration, that's the secret sauce ultimately. So again, you know, it's about it's about patience and in the long term, you know, the funny thing is what we've seen with commercial aircraft is that they go through different iterations. You know, this is not going to be the final iteration of the C919, they might re-engine it. You know, there might be a C919neo <laughs> in, 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 you know, in not, not too long when the next class of, of engines is ready for whatever replaces the 737 and the A320. So, you know, my bet is that this is going to be a platform that is going to evolve over time because the bottom line is the market potential is absolutely enormous. So the C919 is definitely not the only twin-engine next-generation aircraft we have coming out right now. We have the Mitsubishi MRJ. We have the Sukhoi SSJ, the Superjet. We also have the MC21 coming out of Russia. So there's a lot of development happening in this space right now. What do you see ending up as the reigning champion of these new competitors? The one thing we should all kind of step back as lovers of this of this business to remember that in 2017 – there are an enormous number of new airplanes flying and entering service this year. It is extraordinary. I, th- I don't think there's ever been this many at one time. I mean, heck, we had the 78710 and the 319neo flying on the same day. I mean, it feels like we're doing a first flight every two to three weeks. And we've still, as this year rolls on, we've got MC21, A350-1000 entry to service. We have A330neo first flight. So we still have a bunch of milestones to go. So it, it's in a really exciting time. As far as those competitors, the ones who are going to probably find the most success are the ones who are going to be able to tap into the established markets. And certainly, MRJ has that leg up because they already have, they have SkyWest and Transstates on their order books. Obviously, or I say not necessarily obviously, but in, crucially, that's probably going to require a change in scope clause so the regionals can legally fly it. You know, it's, it is too heavy right now. So that's going to be something we're going to have to watch. So, you know, again, there is a balance that's going to have to be struck here amongst all the players. Number one, around certification. Number two, ultimately around reliability. And that was one thing that the Superjet 
has suffered from. You know, Interjet, for example, now there's a grounding because of horizontal stabilizer issues, and Interjet is you know has cooled significantly after being a real booster of the of the superjet. So you know what we're going to see going forward is really can you match the reliability levels of an A320 and a 737? And that's the standard by which you're measured. Right. And you, you kind of alluded to it earlier about how the engines on the C-919 are the same, essentially, as you'll see on your Boeing or Airbus counterparts. What about the rest of the aircraft? Now, of course, it's a Chinese-made aircraft, but what are the guts of the aircraft really made of? Well, you've got a, a who's who of Western suppliers engaged in joint ventures inside of China. So you've got Rockwell Collins, you've got Honeywell, you've got you've got, you know, the the usual players you'd expect to see nose to tail in a Boeing or Airbus aircraft. You know, the, the funny thing is everyone shares the same supply base. And, you know, the other folks were kind of, you know, lamenting the fact that, oh, it's just a, a Chinese knockoff. And it's you, you can, you know, yes, there are visual similarities, but you know, airports are shaped the way airports are shaped. And that gates don't work with blended wing body aircraft yet. And, and certainly, you know, form follows function. And when you have the same suppliers, this is ultimately what you get. You get a very similar aircraft. So, you know, the irony is that, that when you look at an international supply base like this, no one sort of calls the MRJ, you know, you know, Japanese regional jet takes flight with help of U.S. You know, it's like, and <laughs> no one, no one points that out. So, you know, there is a bit of a, a Western double standard that's taking place with the nine one nine, and you know, it should not go unrecognized how challenging it is to build a commercial aircraft. It is the hardest thing in the world you can do, and certainly they've based on the Chinese ecosystem, which is a, a largely planned economy. Um, this is how they've gone about doing it. And each and every one of those companies, whether it's, whether it's CFM, Rockwell, Honeywell, so on and so forth, Parker Eaton, you know, they want a slice of that, of that future pie. And because, you know, it's, it's the land where, where, where hundred million people are getting on an airplane for the first time every year. And that's where the growth is going to be. Right. So Chinese aviation is historically pretty closed off and private for the most part compared to to Western aviation. But I understand that Comac did something pretty damn cool for their first flight, where they actually streamed live video from the flight deck during the first flight. This happened in the middle of the night, 2, 3 a.m. Eastern, but I assume you were able to catch that live? I was able to catch that. And honestly, I I stayed up quite late and thankfully I had the benefit of a three-hour time change here in Seattle. So it wasn't too late, but it, it was late enough. But you know something, just to see over the shoulder of their chief test pilot on a first flight, just, I mean, if they didn't do it, no one would have been like, oh, why didn't you do that? You know, it's, it was a wholly unnecessary act that just raised the bar for really their confidence in doing this and the transparency that's gone along with it. I mean, this is not a, Comac is not known for their transparency. Certainly not Western transparency. So to see that gave the entire world for the first time, not only a glimpse to the C919, but also how you fly an airplane for the first time. And it was fascinating, you know, to, to, to see how he had his displays arranged and the type of movements he was making. And, and you, you were able to gather a good amount of information about, about what was going on there. And it was, it was seemingly pretty relaxed and they had an air to ground channel to go along with it. I mean, it just speaks to the the level of confidence that they want everyone in the world to walk away with 
in terms of how they're feeling about their development. And if I, if I may, one kind of neat note, while it's sort of opaque to you know us in the West, on Chinese social media, there is a ton of information and a ton of you know photos from inside the factory and, and status updates in Mandarin from Comac about what they're doing, which tells you everything you need to know about where they're pushing this and where they're selling it, which is right, right at home. Now, Google Translate only goes so far, so am I going to have to learn Mandarin? <laughs> well, you know, you, you can come learn it with me. I'm, I'm, I'm starting classes soon, so count me. That'll in. be our spinoff podcast. <laughs> learn Mandarin with Ian and Jason. Yeah. <laughs> Struggle with Google Translate with John Ostrower. <laughs> yeah. So the C919 is not Comac's first aircraft, right? It is not, though there's a bit of an asterisk there because the ARJ-21, which is the Advanced Regional Jet for the 21st Century, uh, otherwise known as the DC-9 re-engined, re-winged kind of with winglets and some new new flight deck systems and so on and so forth, was actually started as an AVIC project. AVIC was is an arm of the of the Chinese aerospace industry and was the forerunner to Comac. And then when Comac was established, they kind of brought it all under the same same umbrella. So I remember seeing the, the ARJ-21 at, at the Zhuhai Air Show in 2010. And it's very much a regional jet. And it took them a long time to, to get it get it done. And done is still obviously a relative term because I think there are less than a handful that are currently in service inside of inside of China flying fairly irregularly. Yeah, they're with Chengdu Airlines and they pop up in the OAG schedule every now and then, but it's very infrequent. Yeah, they're they're sort of I mean, I would love to go to China and fly on one. I would really, really love that because frankly, I don't think number one, Western audiences do not understand China. And frankly, I'm trying to understand it also. And the one thing that that's actually not well known is that China is actually the safest place to fly in the entire world. The whole loss rate inside of North Asia since 2011 has been 0.00. Wow. And North America and Europe cannot claim that. And they've gone, went for essentially the worst safety record to the best in the world. And I really want to see it up close. So, you know, stay tuned on that front. But I think it's 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 about time that someone from the West goes in there and learns rather than dictates how things are in the other part of the world. Yeah, that's a great point. I think we've got to wrap it up in a minute or two. Ian, anything left to ask John while we have him? This is kind of a rare opportunity for us. Well, I was going to say, well, we'll definitely have to have him back if he does make it onto the ARJ-21, because I'm certainly very interested to, to see how that project ends up working out. And, and since there's only a few flying, it'll be a, a rather rare opportunity. I'm going to do a full like flyer talk, like trip report. <laughs> it's only, <laughs> like it's only fitting, right? You know, it's, I'll, I'll photograph the tray tables and, you know. And all that. It's, Measure the seat pitch for me. Seat fixtures, seat fixtures. Every, everything. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But yeah, I got to work on my Mandarin first. That's first and foremost. So I guess just to, I think we covered a lot of ground here. And my main takeaway is that the C919 is, is an aircraft by China for China. They could really care less. I mean, at least as, as I'm understanding, they could really care less if, if anyone outside of China ever buys the thing. And so it's really interesting to me to see how this develops. And as you said, it's there's a ton of information on Chinese social media because they're they're playing to a domestic market. And so I want to take a step back and, and I think you mentioned a hundred million new people are taking a flight each year. Yep. Hundred million. That's an insane statistic to me. 
that's a third of the United States getting on the plane for the first time every year. Exactly. Exactly. And their middle class is the size of the U.S. right now. Actually, I think that was about two years ago. So it's probably even larger. It's 1.4 billion people. and So the, this market's not small is what we're saying. <laughs> it's not small. And you want to know something? You know, it, it's like anywhere. Once you get a taste for, for flying and travel and, and wanting to go and, and wanting to move freely, it's a pretty insatiable appetite, you know, and, and a desire to, to do that. And, and the, one, the one thing I would, the one wild card I'll throw in here is it is definitely an aircraft by China for China. But China has also spent a lot of money in places like Africa cultivating new airports and paying for new airports in in various countries around around the continent. And I would not be surprised if over the next decade or so, you know, five, seven, ten years, we see the C919 flying first in in African skies. You know, you've got airports cropping up in countries that either that don't today have A320 or 737 service, but their new airport paid for by China has gates that that are for the size of, you know, large single aisle aircraft. So, you know, watch that space. It's, I think it's going to be something that that's going to likely bear fruit over the, over the next decade or so. That's a great point. We've been chatting with John Ostrar, the CNN aviation editor. John, I want to thank you for taking the time to join us and for being on the podcast. It was a, a real pleasure and we'll definitely be following the Comex C919 as it moves beyond first flight and, and kind of moves into the commercial space. Well, guys, thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. Look forward to doing it again soon. Thanks so much, John. Thanks, guys. Jeremy Dwyer Lindgren has covered some amazing aviation stories over the years. From the final flight of the last passenger DC-10 to the first flight of the A350, Jeremy has been all over the world capturing all sorts of things. But one story he wasn't quite so sure he wanted to cover was nine hours in a Norwegian 737 MAX on delivery from Seattle to Oslo. But Jeremy did go... And then we had him on to discuss that trip and to talk about the proliferation of long-haul, low-cost carriers around the world. Welcome back. We are here again with Jeremy Dwyer Lindgren, who is a aviation uh, reporter that uh, often works with USA Today. And he's back joining us because USA Today sent him far across the pond in a much smaller plane than normal. Jeremy was on the 737 MAX 8 delivery flight for Norwegian's first uh, 737 MAX. And so welcome back, Jeremy. And uh, we're glad you could come talk about uh, Norwegian's new planes. Hi, Jeremy. Hi, Jason. Hi, Ian. Thank you both for having me back. I thought the first time was, uh, well, we'll see how it goes. <laughs> but uh, that was... Um... <laughs> That was a beta version of the show. We we have our things worked out a little better today. I don't think you're recording on like a phone next to an iPad next to like a computer mouse or something. Not today. Today I've upgraded to a standard recorder, uh, but last time was the iPhone next to an iPad. It was very complicated. Only the finest for this production. Exactly. Right. Our, our production value is steadily increasing. You can you can make really quick like week over week gains when you start at the bottom, you know? But I mean, well, we start, the first episode was you know two tin cans and some string, so there's we can only go up from there. Yeah, the, the audio integrity was still pretty good, and we're still here somehow. Yeah, I mean, for for it was it was high quality string. Very <laughs> well. Thanks for being on the show, Jeremy. We'll talk to you two thanks, weeks Jason. Now. So you hopped to the plane, and there. So I mean, just tell us about because delivery flights are, are kind of a mystery to to people that you know you buy a new plane. 
and and what happens? Well, eventually it rolls off the line and some pilots come and fly it away to wherever it needs to go, usually back to headquarters or a company's big maintenance base. And that's how planes get their start after they come off the line. Uh, but for the big ones, things like Norwegian's first 737 MAX flight, they, they make a big big deal of that. Uh, they invited a bunch of uh, press to come on board and there were some staff on board. And then in this particular case, they auctioned off 12 seats through the same folks that do Megadoo, if you guys have ever heard of that. And uh, they, they did a charity auction for UNICEF. I think they raised something like 24000 uh, to go to UNICEF, which was nice. What's the, what's the delivery flight like, and, and how is it different from just a normal flight? Well, delivery flights are different primarily because there's almost nobody on them. So... Uh, it's going to be a pretty stark contrast to the folks who are going to get on about a week from now after the Wi-Fi and a couple other improvements are installed on the plane. But I think there were maybe 35, 40 people on the plane total. Uh, everyone had a row to themselves. It was pretty chill, pretty easy. They served a couple meals uh, en route. And it's Norwegian, so there wasn't much in the There was no Wi-Fi. There was no TV. I think the only thing in my seat back was the safety card, which I do now have. And that was about it. It was uh, The window was the best form of entertainment, which is great because those new CFM engines look really nice and that wingtip is sharp. But that was... That was it's a, Paint is still shiny. Uh, very shiny. Uh, but that's pretty much all there, all there is to do. Nine and a half hours of window viewing. Yikes. So I know I've been on a few delivery flights, some very long ones um, up by you, Seattle, all the way to Doha, which is like a preposterous 14 hours. But it was a fully kitted out aircraft. It had Wi-Fi, it had entertainment, it had power, and it had everything a long haul aircraft is supposed to have. You didn't have any of that. So what did you do for nine and a half hours other than look out the window? Surely you did something else. Well, I got on the plane and it occurred to me I may have bitten off more than I could chew. And then I began to understand why my editor perhaps bailed at the last minute. It began to become a little clearer. Uh, for the most part, I worked. I had to pump out a story and we wanted it to be on the folks who'd auctioned to be onto the airplane because certainly these are not flights that you can go in a book. Uh, they are not available to the public. You can't just go in and get one. So for non-media and non-airline staff to be on a delivery flight was highly unusual. I don't, I, I can't recall seeing that before actually. So I wound up having to talk to a lot of people on the flight and get to know them a little bit and find out who might work for the article. But really other than talking to your fellow passengers and looking out the window, there wasn't, I'm not exaggerating, there wasn't anything else to do. So you got a taste. It was a long nine and a half hours. Yeah, you got a taste of what the 737 MAX is supposed to end up doing, doing these long, quasi-long haul routes, which Norwegian has already started doing to the uh, northeast U.S. Flights like uh, Stewart International Airport north of New York City up to uh, over the ocean to Ireland, which is maybe six hours there, seven, maybe eight on the return, probably less than that. Do you think these... Seven threes are really the right aircraft for the job after being on it for over nine hours? That depends on who you ask. If you're asking Norwegian, obviously the answer is yes. It, it improves seat mile costs pretty dramatically. Uh, the range is much better. You're not risking as much mechanical or fuel stops. Not that you have a lot of those options, but theoretically less stops in Iceland on the way over with the MAX versus a 737-800. If you ask the passenger, that's potentially a much different story. Uh, the, the pitch was 
the space between seats from one point to another was was not as drastically awful as I expected it to be. But the slimline Recaros that they put on board, it's it's going to be a long seven hours for the passengers back. They will be installing Wi-Fi eventually, I, I believe before they're pressed into service, but it's a modification they make back in Oslo. Uh, and that will certainly improve it by quite a bit. But um, it's, it's, a, it's a long flight for the passenger, and I would definitely prefer going on a wide body most of the time over going on a 737, certain, just for the claustrophobic feeling, if nothing else. That's a packed airplane for a long time. Norwegian has been operating 787s over the ocean for quite a number of years now. They're a, they were a fully 787 uh, transatlantic or, I guess, long-haul airline, and they're actually kitted out quite nicely. I think 31-inch pitch. They have seatback entertainment. Um, they will have Wi-Fi eventually, like the Max will have Wi-Fi eventually. Not yet. Maybe in a year or so. But if it's between the 7.3 Max and the 7.8, I know what I'm picking every time without question. No, it's not even a contest, and and uh, Norwegian was nice enough to put me up on the Dreamliner in their premium class on the way back, and it was a first-class domestic seat with an economy plus service, and it wasn't half bad. And in the back, uh, I've read a lot of reviews from people who've done uh, economy in the back, and it certainly you get a heck of a price uh, and reasonable service that can be compared at times with uh, has compared has compared favorably many times with some of the big legacy carriers like Delta and British. Of course, uh, when things go well, things go well, but where you have these standalone carriers run into problems is when their schedule goes downhill and their their hub gets socked in or something else, and then options for rebounding go dramatically down, and that that's where people and a lot of these long-haul standalone carriers run into big problems. Yeah, unlike major global airlines that may have one or two or even more uh, spare aircraft in their fleet. So if one aircraft breaks down or gets stranded somewhere due to weather, they can press another one to the service. Norwegian doesn't have that option, do they? No, they have a pretty heavy fleet utilization. Um, on the way back, our airplane uh, inbound aircraft was coming in slow from Oakland. So even though we were missing tons of connections, you wound up just having to wait for the plane to get there. If it had been pulled out of service... It's not like they just have an extra Dreamliner sitting around to pull in. It's, you're going to have to wait until one frees up or they're going to have to find a new new way for you. Yeah, but there's... That's kind of the downside to them. Yeah, there's definitely some advantages, though. I mean, they're opening these routes that no one has ever thought about even serving before, like uh, Hartford, Connecticut to, to Europe, Stewart to um, over to Europe. Some of these routes are kind of ridiculous, but they seem to be working. Well, I mean, that's the thing. Is there long-term potential for, I guess, two questions. Do do the routes make sense? And then is there long-term potential for people who don't care about the comfort factor, who just care about, I want to go from A to B? Right. And there are definitely people north of New York that don't want to hassle with driving all the way down to JFK and Newark to catch a flight when they can just take a slightly less great experience from their local airport up north and be there that much quicker and that much cheaper. Yeah, I think as to whether the routes make sense, time time will tell on that. There's certainly no shortage of 
low-cost leisure carriers like Condor that have started serving the U.S., and they make a big fanfare every summer, but we're going to launch 10 new routes and major expansion, but then the subtext to that is they dropped six of last summer's, and uh, certainly Norwegians found that as well. Is San Juan still going today? I don't think I don't think it is, but they made a big deal out of that. And uh, they also dropped their uh, Caribbean flights out of uh, Baltimore. Right. So uh, a lot of they're launching something like 20 long haul routes this summer. Uh, It's pretty insane. And I'd love to see how those hold up in six months to a year. What what percentage of those are still going? Yeah. Just today, Norwegian announced service from Chicago and Austin, Texas to London and Boston and Newark and Oakland to Paris. Mm -hmm. So that's a pretty dramatic expansion. And Ian, you get a new airline in Chicago. Good for you. I, I, you know what? We do. And we also get the, the 787-9, which will be fun to see. Another thing fun to see. And, and I'm thinking about taking it because it, it, it's not a terribly well-timed flight going over. You get in at about 5 a.m. in London. Ooh. But it's not terrible. I mean, considering that it's a uh, – what are they? So the tickets are 179 pounds. Uh, so, a, you know, a little over $200. And they added this year, uh, just recently, a daytime salmon flight from JFK that leaves something like 8 a.m. at a JFK, arrives Heathrow maybe 10 or 11 p.m., which is just fantastic. It's a transatlantic, non-red-eye eastbound. It's awesome. That's a great time. And I hope, I, yeah, it's, I, anytime I can take a transatlantic daytime flight over to London, I absolutely do it. BA offers it, American offers it, and now Norwegian's getting in on that. And it might be the thing that finally pushes me to actually book Norwegian. But I'm kind of concerned that what if I'm on one of those flights that's delayed two hours? I don't want to get into Heathrow at two, three in the morning. So we'll see if the price is right. I'd do it though. Just coming back to where Norwegian's dealing with, you know, the fleet utilization, we're talking about, you know, airline, the low cost carriers that are dealing with that, like, wow, where they've had days where it's taken them to get back to any semblance of normalcy because of, you know, weather at their hub airport. Yeah. Well, when Norwegian first started service at JFK, they didn't even have their 787s yet. They used least uh, 747s, A330s, 767s, whatever they could find to fill in the uh, service, they did. And this was for a good year that you would never actually see a Norwegian 787 simply because they weren't built yet. Yeah, I was going to say it was Norwegian operated by HiFly. Yeah, um, Euro-Atlantic and HiFly basically refurbished their entire fleet probably because of the uh, proceeds they got from Norwegian. And for that matter, Lot Polish was picking up some of those wet leases too. Yeah, who knows who was actually paying these bills though? Whether it was it was a weird combo of uh, whoever happened to be available that day. Yeah, we get some weird substitutions for Norwegian every now and then, which is which is good for them that they don't just cancel these flights if they if they have an aircraft out of service, they'll lease an aircraft from whoever they can for a month at a time. Um, the experience is usually a lot, lot worse, but it's better than not getting there at all, I suppose. Well, I think it just turns into more a max experience because I've looked at a couple of those and they, they subbed in a WAMO 767 or something. I don't know. But the interior doesn't look like it had been updated since 85. There wasn't even like the tricolor screen or anything. It was just the seat back. So I think they're uh, they're just buying into the 
short haul, long haul, max experience instead of the Dreamliner one. So I'd, I think it might not be that far off. My favorite airline that these uh, other guys lease from is Privilege Style. They have like 1767 and just the weirdest name out there. Yeah, I mean, Privilege Style, they have they have a nice, it's kind of like a 90s chic livery. Yeah, uh, on and a, a and, 90s chic interior. Well, there's that. But I mean, does any, I mean, we're talking about this and and, and the question that I always come back to and, and the question, I mean, Ryanair is probably one of the most successful airlines on the planet. EasyJet's extremely successful. Spirit, Frontier, all of the Asian low-cost carriers are extremely Ooh. successful. So, I mean, I guess speaking from a data standpoint, it doesn't matter what the interior of the plane looks like. It doesn't matter how comfortable the seat is. If the price is right, people are still going to buy the tickets. Yep. There are people who will pay for a better experience. There's plenty of those people, but there are always people who will want to buy the bottom of the barrel. Yep. And those are going to be the, the types that they're going to get over and over again, especially once the U.S. becomes more, when U.S. travelers become more familiar with the concept of long-haul spirit airline style travel. I think at the moment, they're not super susceptible to that. Uh, long-haul travel, I think, still just looks like I buy, an air, I buy a low ticket and it's on an airplane and it's on an airline. They don't think of it as the same I don't think it's segmented in the minds of many U.S. travelers in the way it is for Europe. Of if I want my full fare class and changeability and want uh, to grab a meal, then I'll I'll take Lufthansa down to Cape Town. But if I want to just get there because I only want to pay two hundred bucks, then I'll hop on Condor or I'll hop on Eurowings or I'll hop on Thomas Cook. I think as they begin to penetrate that market, which I think they're, they're still at a total seat capacity, they're still only in single digits, which given how many routes we see open up, doesn't it, it seems like it should be much more than that because we hear about it as though it's an invasion with Norwegian popping up in a new city every other day practically. But in terms of total carrying capacity, they, they represent a fairly small amount of the market, but I think they represent a gigantic potential. And that's why you see all of a sudden these big carriers rushing back into creating low-cost subsidiaries, which we haven't seen since the 90s and early 2000s. Will we see a return of TED? Oh, man, I hope not. <laughs> no, I don't think so. There are a lot of people who would want to bring Song back, but I'm not sure TED is one of them. No, maybe not. But you look at what's happening Ted in brings up that nostalgia. No. IAG well, has their own long-haul, low-cost level. Air France is going to do one yep. that I can't remember the name of. Uh, Lufthansa has CityLine, which is just uh, Lufthansa aircraft operated by CityLine pilots and crew. Uh, there's a lot going on in that sector. All the mainline big guys are trying to, I don't want to say copy Norwegian, but Norwegian jumps and then BA or Air France or Lufthansa jumps right behind them. Yeah, and they've been stuck between the choice of, of having to compete on those leisure routes by either depressing fares in their existing metal and thus endangering the business traveler and everything else because they travel on frequency rather than on just getting there. So you, you've seen a couple of them that will just change their pricing model and segment uh, their pricing even more, which is what you're seeing a lot of the American carriers do, offering basic economy tickets. But the Europeans have generally gone the route of creating the subsidiary, uh, which is interesting. I'm curious which one will do better in the long run, either the expansion and more segmentation of pricing on 
existing plane or whether the return of uh, the subsidiary like uh, your uh, level and euro wings will wind up performing better in the long run or if it's all just an overreaction in norwegian the appetite for norwegian goes down over time well i mean level's an interesting case because it which i don't think it will you i I, yeah i don't think it will either but level's an interesting case because they're basically a virtual airline they they don't actually exist i mean it's just iberia no it's it's iberia's aoc and Mm -hmm. new paint on a plane and and a new pricing model. So it's it's interesting to see how that's kind of going to work out or not, as the case may be. Kind of a short term plan. IAG just kind of took an aircraft that was available. It's got basically the same interior economy and premium economy that Iberia has, the same Wi Fi, the same uh hard product, but it just happened to be a new aircraft that they could press into service um to do what they needed to do, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it, so the 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 low cost long haul is it's not new, but it it seems to be to we're kind of at an inflection point where there there's like Jeremy said, there's two models that are kind of competing out and seeing which one's going to work better. Is it, is it a pricing model where you get less service versus some people who get more service because they paid more, or does everybody get the same? teeny tiny amount of service and then if you want to pay more per service item i guess you can i I don't think that it has to be a zero-sum game there i think the answer can be both can survive and do well i i think that you might i wonder how much room and space there is for a ton of low-cost standalones uh as we see a proliferation of you've got AirAsia x you've got jetstar and everything else how well will these survive in the long haul i don't know because i think i think norwegian was saying something like it needs to get load factors in the upper 80s lower 90s which is extremely high for this to work and ryanair had the opportunity to go into long haul and took a pass so i i still think that it's it's at a tipping point where it feels like it's gaining the momentum that freddie laker could only dream about of uh you know really moving forward and gaining mainstream acceptance and certainly the big carriers going into subsidiaries i think is an indication that it is gaining that mainstream acceptance but i still think it's a tall order economically to support and high 80s low 90s load factors are are nothing to sniff at i think industry average still hovers around 80 or 85 so that's that that's a lot to to bank on I think that's still a pretty tough, tall order for them. Well, and especially where they're flying into. I mean, with the Max, well, the the 738s and and then the Max to come, especially. I mean, those load factors will be interesting to to see where, you know, Hartford and and, uh, Stewart Airport, where are you you really going to get into the 90s with those? Are there that many people who are willing to to go away from JFK or, or Newark or or wherever. I mean, I, I think that'll be an interesting thing to to find out, and hopefully, it works. Yeah, I think I think those are good, interesting questions because I um, I don't know. I was looking at a I think NYC Aviation or it might not have been them, but one of them came out with a recent review in which the the inbound flight got canceled or something like that. And I think it's another one of those Norwegian when things go badly their ability to recover and pivot and act nimbly is just 
it's not there. And that's where I think is going to be the make or break. When things go well, people are going to love it. You see, you move into a new market and you put out, gee, I can go round trip on a bare bones ticket for 200 to London Gatwick round trip. Like that, that's nuts. That gets my attention pretty quick. And I probably would hate the entire experience. I love my Delta, but, uh, that's a really attractive way to get attention. And, and people love hearing that. But, uh, if you start to get enough of these, we're all the way out in Stewart, which I was willing to accept, but then the bus, the, the flight got canceled and they were going to bus us back, but they couldn't get a bus driver to come out. They're going to have to have that ground support and they're going to have to have a lot of ducks lined up consistently to get things to work well and, and accommodate people well and treat them well when things go badly. If they just take the model of, Hey, you paid 20 bucks for a ticket. So forget it. I think that they're, and that happens a lot. I think they're going to start getting that reputation that they've kind of already gotten long haul, which is you roll the dice a little bit on whether or not you get there or get there on time or get to the city you plan on going. Uh, so I, I think if things go well and they support people well, when things go badly, I think they'll probably be okay. But if, if they start earning a reputation that gee, they strand two flights a week out at Stewart on these, buses in a tiny little room uh they're going to run into trouble pretty quickly because that reputation is going to go south real fast yeah and remember when you fly one of these ultra low-cost carriers like norwegian or spirit or i guess um wow air they don't have any partners so if your flight is canceled they are not going to rebook you on anyone whereas if you fly delta they will rebook you on klm or air france or somebody or united will rebook you on swiss these airlines ultra low cost they're ultra low cost because they don't have any partners so if you have a canceled flight that's basically it you have to wait for the next norwegian or wow air flight they're not rebooking you on anyone Right. And we saw a little bit of an example that I, I, I never got an example. I was going around with the people at the airport in Oslo the day we arrived uh, after the Norwegian events had wrapped up and there were just bags everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. And apparently they'd had some sort of weather delay or computer glitch, whatever it was, didn't matter. Uh, but the end result was a lot of bags wound up stuck in Oslo and SAS which has the Star Alliance, they have tons of partners, had moved out most of its bags by the same time the next day. Norwegian still had to move it on only its metal, and those the piles of bags that were waiting for those poor Norwegian travelers, I, there were a ton of them, and they weren't going anywhere anytime soon. There might not be another flight to that destination until next Tuesday or whatever. It could be a weekly destination, and you're kind of just out of luck. And there might not be space on that plane when it shows up either. If they're running 90%, 80% load factors, those holds fill up mighty quick, especially when you're creating a business model that encourages that. Good luck getting that bad back. But otherwise, I think they, I, I, I think I uh, was talking with you, Jason, a month or two back, and I needed to go over to Europe later this year, and I was looking at a Delta Redemption on the way back. But on the way out, I was looking at Norwegian because it was a decent price point, and I wanted to try their premium economy. I don't, I don't recall you advising me favorably in their direction at the time. Uh, but luckily I got the opportunity to try it without having to necessarily, uh, fork out a ton of my own money for it, which is always a nice way to do it when you can even. Uh, but I, I get the value proposition. If, if you give me a choice, if I didn't have a tie to a loyalty program, 
and uh, I'm only going point to point, say only London Gatwick or only Paris, their value proposition goes up dramatically. It's just like the price point is just so good. We're not looking at Delta booking uh, $700 for premium, but you save 50 bucks on basic economy. We're looking at hundreds of dollars difference, even after you put in for, say, a bag and a meal. It's still a substantial difference. And I think that value proposition is extremely good. Uh, I, I get it. And especially with premium economy, the service was virtually indistinguishable from that that I would have gotten on any of the major carriers anyway with a better seat and only for like two or $300 more, which if I'm just going by myself or it's my wife and I, that's a pretty easy sell. And even in the back, it's not substantially different and it's still much cheaper, at least on the Dreamliners. That doesn't apply in my opinion to the Max, but for those Dreamliner long haul flights to the West Coast, I just, it's an extremely attractive proposition. Yeah, we're going to have to keep a close eye on this one and see how it develops, I guess, over months or even years. But it's pretty cool that you got a sneak peek. Yeah, we'll see how long the routes last or or what changes they make. And Jeremy, thanks for joining us. It's always a pleasure to have you on and, and hopefully we'll have you on soon uh, to maybe talk about uh, some aviation photography stuff. And we can uh, we can talk about some plane spotting. I'd be happy to come back. Tell people where they can find you on Twitter. You can find me at photo is in photography JDL. That's Juliet Delta Lima, photo JDL. Jeremy, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us. Likewise, guys. Have a good one. Take care. Bye, Jeremy. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll be back with a regularly scheduled episode next time. If you've got ideas for the podcast or feedback in general, we'd love to hear from you. As always, drop us a note at podcast at fr24.com. We love the emails that we get. Uh, a lot of people have shared some really fascinating travel stories over the years with us, uh, and that's been a really great thing to read. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter or Facebook, FlightRadar24. And if you like what you hear, leave us a rating or a review or both on iTunes. And that helps other people find the podcast. And the more people that find the podcast, uh, we think that uh, the more people like the podcast and, and we can keep doing what we're doing. Happy New Year, everyone, and happy tracking.